0: 15, Psalm 15, yes ma'am, they're right there, I got mine. Never mind. David was not only a great king and not only a giant killer, but he was a gifted writer. His claim to fame is not the fact that he killed Goliath. Although that was pretty impressive, wasn't it? Taking a sling and a stone and hitting a giant in his one vulnerable spot right in the middle of his forehead. People who have the genetic makeup that causes giantism have a thin place in their skull right in the middle of their forehead. Uh, It's one of the danger spots for them. And... uh, David didn't have any idea about that, but God did, so God directed the stone, and David hit Goliath with that stone, and boom, down he fell. David ran over and took out his sword and chopped his head off. I look back on it, and now that I'm 63, for him to be able to do that at the age of 17 is pretty amazing. When I was 17, I was pretty sure there wasn't much to it. But I'm not 17 anymore, and I realized that at 17, I probably would not have been able to do it. But uh, very impressive, and, and and it gave David a name in Israel. The the late, The women, when they came through town, would sing, Saul hath killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And, uh, you know, big deal. And then he became king of Israel and, and uh, was a... Uh, a very gifted king, but that is not his claim to fame either. Uh, people say, well, Brother Casey, does everybody have a claim to fame? Well, oh, I don't know if everybody does or not, but I do. Um, I'm Ron Casey's brother. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> It's kind of interesting how your status changes through the years. When I was uh, very young, I was Gene Casey's boy. And then I got married and became Mary Casey's husband and then uh, Jamie came along, and I was Jamie Casey's dad. And then uh, after Ron retired from the House of Representatives, uh, I became known as Ron Casey's brother. And so one of these days, I may be my own man, but I'm not really too uh, concerned about it because I know it may not happen. But uh, David, his claim to fame, what was his claim to fame? Great king, giant killer. His claim to fame is the fact that he was a man after God's heart, a man after God's heart. He loved God, and because he loved God, he wrote beautiful poems and and songs about God and songs to help people, to serve God. And they put those together, King Hezekiah, I believe, is the one who put them all together, and they call it the Book of Psalms. Now, there are other writers of the Book of Psalms besides David. Moses' psalm is in here, uh, Psalm 90, and then the psalms of King Hezekiah are in here, and uh, uh, various uh, others, uh, Asaph, who was the music director under King David, uh, he wrote several of the psalms. But... uh, but, but David is the most famous of the psalmists because of his love for God. He wanted to please God. He wanted God to be glorified in his life. He wanted just to, to do things that that God would be pleased with in his life. We get to Psalm 15, and we find one of those psalms. David writes, and this is written probably after he brought the Ark of the Covenant, from down in the woods in the Judean wilderness up to the city of Jerusalem and built a tabernacle for it there. The main tabernacle was up at Shiloh. And, but David built a place for the Ark of the Covenant. And they put the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And this is probably written after that happened, after he did that. But he begins a psalm, "'Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle?' Now, the word translated tabernacle here actually just means tent, okay? Tent, a place to live. And the Israelites had lived in tents ever since they left Egypt. Lived in tents before they went to Egypt. And so they know about living in tents. And you think, oh, man, I wouldn't want to live in a tent all the time. Well, some of these tents are very luxurious. I mean, the felt, which keeps us... The sun off of you, but absorbs heat throughout the day and then at night it keeps you warm. Beautiful carpets laid on the ground in the tent uh, to, to walk on and uh, so that the, you don't have to walk in the dirt. Magnificent. I mean, some of them are truly magnificent. And so uh, David is talking about God's tabernacle, God's place of dwelling. Where they put the Ark of the Covenant. And he says, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? And then he begins to answer the question He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is condemned. But he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury and taketh reward against the innocent, nor taketh reward against the innocent, he that doeth these things shall never be moved. Shall never be moved. David is talking here about a man or a woman who is going to be stable. They're going to be solid. Solid in their character. Solid in their reputation. People are going to be able to respect them, though they may not like them. Generally, people who are liars don't like being around people who always tell the truth. People who are thieves don't like to be around people who uh, think that stealing is a violation of one of the Ten Commandments, which it is. Fornicators don't want to be around people who believe that your life ought to be pure and clean. David is a man after God's heart. Is he a perfect man? No, not at all. Oh, he sinned wickedly. In fact, when he comes to build the temple, God says you can't build it. You can collect the materials for it, but you can't build it because you're a man with bloody hands. You're a man who has slaughtered people. I'm not going to let you build my temple. My temple needs to be built by a man of peace. David was not perfect in his relationships either. The book of Leviticus tells us that the king of Israel ought to be the husband of one wife. David had several wives. And then he took Uriah's wife Bathsheba. had Uriah killed. So he was not perfect by any means. But he loved God. And when he confessed his sins, God forgave him. The problem that I see in the world today is people don't know what repentance is. They don't know about confessing sin and then turning from them. When I was little, our neighbors uh, would go to confession every week. Okay? Okay? And we were talking one day, we were getting ready to play football and, uh, in their yard. They had this really cool yard to play football in. And we were getting ready to play football in their yard. And uh, and uh, one of us, I don't remember who brought it up, but somebody brought up the fact that they had been to confession that day. And one of the kids said, uh, yeah, in fact, I-, I confessed doing this, and then I confessed it two more times because I'm going to do it again next week. <laughs> okay. That may very well be confession, but that is not repentance. Repentance means to turn from sin, to acknowledge that it is sin, and then to turn away from it, not do it again. So as David begins to write here, he says, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle, and who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Now, there is a primary interpretation, and then there is a primary application. The primary interpretation is who is going to live with God in his dwelling place. In this tent that David has built for him. In the city of Jerusalem on Mount Zion. That's the holy hill. The primary application is who is going to be allowed to live with God forever. Who is God willing to accept as one of His children, we're all His creation. There's no question about that. But when people say, "Well, we're all God's children," I have to say, "No, we're not all God's children. We're all God's creation." Amen. But only those who believe in Jesus Christ and receive Him are children of God. John chapter one verse twelve tells us that uh, chapter verse eleven and twelve. Excuse me, chapter one verse eleven and twelve. He came into his own, his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, the children of God. So it's only those who have received Jesus Christ as personal savior that are allowed to become the children of God. So we're all his creation, but we're not all his children. So David writes and says, Who's going to abide in your tabernacle? And who shall dwell in thy holy hill? And then he begins to give the answer. Number one, he that walketh uprightly. He's not talking about walking on two legs and not slumping or walking with a hump in your back or, or having to limp. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about that person whose life represents the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone who is upright in character. There are some people, when I talk to them, I just trust them. Because I know that their character is upright. I know if they tell me they're going to do something, it's going to get done. They're going to continue to do it until either their obligation is ended, or until I tell them they're released from the obligation. Because they're just going to be right all the time. There are other people, when I talk with them, I, I well, I guess I better not come to this side. you all think I'm picking on you. But, no. but there are other people, when I talk with them, I, I take everything with a grain of salt. You know what that idiom means? That means you hear what they're saying, but you have to wonder what they mean. Might not be the same. David says, the man who's going to uh, walk in God's house a man who's going to do well with God is a man who walks uprightly. A man of character. I have friends in Kansas City. Not very many, but a few. And uh, one couple were having difficulty. I think I've shared this with you before. They're having difficulty. He moved out. He loved his wife, but he was always testing her to see if she loved him. Because he has real security issues. And uh, so I found out about it and uh, got to talking to him. And and, uh, without telling him that I knew what was going on, I just said, "Uh, how are things with you and your wife? And he said, well, tell you the truth, not good. I said, why not? And he said, well, I, I moved out. And I said, wow. I said, I wasn't there, but it seems like I... Had I been there, I would remember something about you standing there in front of her and telling her that you're going to love her every day for the rest of your life till death parts you. You're going to love her, cherish her, honor her? And he said, well, yeah, that's true. That's what happened. I said, don't you keep your word? And he turned beet red. I mean, whoa, it's like I'd slapped him. And he ducked his head down, and he looked up at me in a minute, and he said, You know what? Yes, I do keep my word. Thank you. I needed that. If we're going to walk uprightly, then we're going to have to keep our word. No matter what it is or who it's to. Secondly, he said, not only he that walketh uprightly, but he that worketh righteousness. He that worketh righteousness. Do we work righteousness with our life? I'll go ahead and tell you, I am not righteous. I have no righteousness of my own. If I try to be good, it ends up being a big mess. People say, when I ask them, are, you know, how are you? And they say, I'm good. I always say, well, I wish I could be good. Then they say, what? And I say, well, I tried being good one time, and my brother Ron got me in trouble anyway, so I gave it up. Okay? But the truth is... There's none good. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. There's none righteous. No, not one. Romans chapter 1. Excuse me, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. But this is a man that worketh righteousness. Any righteousness that I have is a gift from God, purchased for me by the Lord Jesus Christ when he died on the cross of Calvary. We sing a song here on Sunday night sometimes, uh, The Best Thing in My Life I Ever Did Do. Oh, the best thing in my life I ever did do. Oh, the best thing in my life I ever did do. If you know it, sing it with me. Oh, the best thing in my life I ever did do was take off the old rope and put on the new... For the old robe was dirty, all tattered and torn. But the new robe is spotless, had never been worn. Oh, the best thing in my life I ever did do was take off the old robe and put on the new. You see, when I went to Jesus, He forgave my sins. Covered them with His blood. And then gave me His robe of righteousness to wear. So when God sees me, He sees me dressed in the righteousness of His Son. As a result of that, not to achieve that, not to make that happen, but as a result of having had it happen, I try to please God. I try to live a life that's pleasing to God. I try to be a man that walks uprightly and works righteousness. Because when Jesus was here, He worked righteousness. We have to be His representatives. The only hands He has are our hands. The only feet He has here on this earth are our feet. We're to work righteousness. And then, the third thing the psalmist says, David says, He that speaketh the truth in his heart. I've heard a lot of different people speak the truth. You know? Paul explains it and says that it's to be done like this. Speak the truth in love. Because I've heard some people speak the truth and it was not in love and it was very vicious and very hurtful. God's not pleased with that. But that's not what the psalmist here is talking about. He's not talking about speaking the truth with your mouth. That's going to happen if you walk uprightly and you work righteousness. Yes. He's talking about speaking the truth in your heart. To thine own self be true, Shakespeare said. Then you can't be false to any other. Be honest with yourself. And that's not always pleasant. No, if I'm honest with myself, then I have to confess to myself that sometimes I am covetous. A guy passed me this morning in a pickup truck, Chevy Sierra. I'm not particularly crazy about Chevy. They're the largest Chinese car company in the world. Seriously. They moved all their research and development to China. A lot of the manufacturing is done in China. They kept just enough here in the States so that Americans will think it's an American-made vehicle. But this guy passed me in a a brand-new Sierra pickup truck, and I looked at it, and I thought, ooh, that'd be nice to have. And then I thought, "Uh, is that covetousness I'm hearing? Yeah, because I didn't want just any pickup truck. I wanted his. (laughs) So I had to speak the truth in my heart. Say, God, I know if I needed a Sierra pickup truck, you would have already given me one. So I'm not worried about it. I don't really need one. I have you, and that's all I need. Isn't that true? If we speak the truth in our heart, can't we say that Christ is all I need? So why is it we think think that we have to accumulate all this stuff? And all this junk? He that speaketh the truth in his heart. Number three. He that backbiteth not with his tongue. Whoa. Some of us are great at that. Okay? When... Preachers get get together and sitting around talking about spiritual gifts and, and some have the gift of teaching and some have the gift of preaching and some have the gift of helps and some have the gift of ministry and some have the gift of waiting. See, what's that? You mean just sitting patiently? No, serving others. I mean when you go to the restaurant, don't you want somebody to wait on you? Sure, that's what the gift of waiting is, serving others. And so uh, we get to talk about that. And then when it comes to my turn, I say, well, I have this gift of criticism. Ask me about anybody. (laughs) That is a spiritual gift. It just doesn't have to be the Holy Spirit. (laughs) But, oh, I used to have this ability to just pick people apart. I was doing it one time, and my wife looked at me, and she said, honey, do you know how hurtful that is? Whoa, I'd never asked myself that question before. Does my ability to be smart-mouthed build or tear down other people? The Holy Spirit began to deal with me about it. The man that's going to dwell in the presence of God will not backbite with his tongue, nor do evil to his neighbor. He'll not do evil against his neighbor. So what kind of evil would that be? What's he talking about here, Brother Casey? Well, I can imagine there are several things that might be evil that you could do to your neighbor. In David's time, you could steal one of his sheep. If he had a bunch of sheep, he probably wouldn't notice one being missing. Except the shepherds always counted them every day. Or you could take something that belonged to him. Or you could badmouth him around the neighborhood. Several different things you could do that would be evil to your neighbor. Or you could refuse to tell him that there's a way of salvation, that salvation is a free gift. And that. He or she could be saved and not have to spend eternity in hell. Because most everybody believes they're going to heaven, but they don't know the truth about how to get there. Do you know what you have to do to go to hell? We have tracks. You didn't say it on the front. What to do to go to hell? And you open them up and it's blank on the inside. Because you don't have to do anything to go to hell. You were born a sinner. So you're already on your way. And then as soon as you found out what sin was and decided you might like it, you tried a few things. And as we get older, oh, we get better and better at it. Not just the sin, but the justification for the sin. So that we can say, well, everybody does it. Or we can say, well... I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And truth is, you don't have to look very far to be better than somebody. But the truth of the matter is, the majority of people who think they're going to heaven are not going to heaven because the Bible says there's only one way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And then the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 and 4 explain how Jesus is the way. He says in verse 1, this is the gospel whereby you got saved. And the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 says that we have to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, indicating that our sin was paid for. If we do that, the scripture says, Thou shalt be saved. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, how do you call on him? Well, call him by name. Jesus. I need to be forgiven. I need you because you have already died for my sin and God's already uh, raised you from the dead, indicating that I can be saved, I need you to forgive me and to save me from the penalty of sin. Now, when you do that, if, if you are sincere in your heart, if you believe with your heart and you confess with your mouth, you say, I asked Jesus to save me. The scripture says, thou shalt be saved. Doesn't say will be, doesn't say might be, but I'll go ahead and tell you, it's not praying some little prayer, and it's not just saying the words, no, it is a transaction that takes place in your heart when you want it, when you want to be saved. Because I know lots of folks that, somebody showed them the gospel, and Said, now, if you don't want to go to hell, you just pray this. They said this little prayer, and now they think they're going to heaven when they didn't repent of sin. They didn't turn to God. They just repeated what somebody said. There wasn't anything went on in their heart and mind. No, it was just, hey, sure, yeah, I'll take it. A free trip? Sure, yeah, give me the ticket that's not what salvation is all about. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. If you know anything about birth, wow, that's not something that just happens. We have several ladies in our church that are wishing it would happen more quickly. (laughs) But it's not something that just happens. No. It's a work of God. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. When that happens, Scripture says, old things are passed away. And behold, all things become new. Like what? Oh, a new desire. A desire to be with God's people. A desire to know God's Word. A desire to spend time with God. new family. Because you're now a child of God. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking and He says, you know what? He says, in that day, many shall come to Me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we worship and didn't we do all these mighty works and all these wonderful things in Your name? And He said, and I will say to them, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. There are some uh, folks who believe that if you get saved and then you sin again, you're not saved anymore. But Jesus doesn't say here, I used to know you and now I don't know you anymore. He says, I never knew you. So they never did get saved. Somebody criticized Baptist. And, of course, I took it personally because I'm Baptist. And they said, you Baptists believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. My response was, I'm not worried about those that are saved and always saved. I'm worried about those that were never saved and think they're saved. Because some people think, go to church regularly, hey, you're in. You do some good works and you're in. You just act like a Christian, live like a Christian, be baptized, whatever, you're in. No. You must be born again. You've got to be saved. That's the only way to stay out of hell. The psalmist writes, He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor. And I can't think of any greater evil than to let your neighbor die and go to hell. Or he that taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. Always thought this meant your neighbor does something against you, and so you get mad at him. No, that's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about is somebody else does something to your neighbor, and you get mad at them on your neighbor's behalf. You take up the reproach against your neighbor instead of letting your neighbor deal with it. In whose eyes a vile person is Condemned. In whose eyes a vile person is condemned. My heart breaks for people who live in open sin and think that the world just ought to accept it. Because that's not what the Bible says. You say, what kind of open sin, Brother Casey? Well, how about fornication? Sex outside of marriage. How about adultery? How about homosexuality? How about drunkenness? All of those things. You say, Brother Casey, are are you being judgmental? No, I'm quoting Scripture. And the truth of the matter is my heart breaks for them. Because there's no command in Scripture that does God any good at all. He gave every command to keep us from hurting ourselves and from hurting others. Every command in Scripture is designed to help us not to hurt one another. And so anytime you break one of God's laws, you've hurt yourself and you've hurt somebody else. So don't expect me to rejoice in it with you. And say, oh, I'm so, uh, well, I'm so glad you're happy in this relationship. Don't ask me to turn my head and look the other way when I see you drinking. I've seen alcoholics and delirium tremors. I've heard my mother tell the stories about her dad coming in drunk at 2 o'clock in the morning getting all the kids up and getting his wife up, lining them up against the wall in the living room with his shotgun, threatening to kill them if they moved or made a sound. Small children. My uncle was two. My mother was four. Keeping them up for more than an hour until finally in his drunken stupor, Allowed my grandmother to put him to bed. He was taller than I am and she was about this tall. And people drink and say, the Bible doesn't say it's drinking's a sin. No, the Bible says drinking's stupid. Wine is a mocker. Beer is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Direct quote. What does not wise mean? Stupid. Even I know that. Here's your sign. So don't ask me to be joyous and approve of your behavior when you're hurting yourself and hurting others? That doesn't make any sense to me. The Bible says, he that's going to stand in the holy hill of the Lord is he in whose eyes a vile person is condemned. Now, what happens when you see a vile person condemned? Oh, your heart ought to break for them. Yeah. Because when God condemns somebody, they're in serious trouble. God honors them and the person who stands in the holy hill honors them that fear the Lord. Do you fear God? We ought to. You say case. What is there to be fearful about about God? Well, how about Hurricane Katrina? How about Ike? How about Sandy? How about the brush fires in California and in Colorado and in New Mexico and northern Arizona? How about the drought in Texas and New Mexico? You say, well, Brother Casey, those are just natural occurrences. Yeah, and we have a God who is able to unnaturally prevent those occurrences. For years. More than a hundred years. God kept His hand of protection on this country. And I don't see that happening anymore. In my lifetime, I've seen it change. And if Christians don't begin to fear the Lord, it's only going to get worse. then he says, the man that's going to stand in the holy hill and live in God's tabernacle is he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. What does that mean? That means you make a promise and you keep your promise. Say, what? Yeah. You promise somebody you're going to love them for the rest of your life and you just love them for the rest of your life. You say, but really, the they're not very lovely. They're not lovable. I just don't feel love for them anymore. Big, hairy deal. You may want to edit that part out of this. <laughs> love is not an emotion. Love's not a feeling. Love is an act of the heart. If you love somebody, you just show them every day that you love them. You tell them that you love them. You act like you love them. You don't have to feel in love. He that swears to his own hurt and changes not. Promises somebody's going to do something and then he finds out it's going to cost him And he does it anyway. Even though it cost him. He does it just because he said he was going to. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. Nope. The man that is going to dwell in God's presence won't do these things, then what will he do? He'll walk uprightly, he'll work righteousness, he'll speak the truth in his heart. And he that doeth these things shall never be moved. He'll never be moved. The government comes along and says, Well, you can't say that. Well, I'll go ahead and tell you if the Bible says it, I'm going to say it. Well, we'll take away your tax exempt status. Nowhere in the Bible does it guarantee tax exempt status for believers. And God already knows what the future holds, so it's not like it's going to be a big surprise to Him. You see, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are a steward of the mysteries of God. Stewards of the mysteries of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Verse 2 says, It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful." faithful. 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 Did you get that word yet? What's the word? Faithful. Okay, one more time. Faithful. What's that mean to be faithful? It means you're going to always be there. Always be doing your job. Always be doing what you're supposed to be doing. Because you are a steward of the mysteries of God. And it's required in stewards that a man be found Faithful. The man that doesn't fear God doesn't worry about being a good steward. But the man who fears God wants to be found faithful. And that's the message. Here's the invitation. If you're here this morning and you're not 100% sure that you are saved, that you're going to heaven when you die. I would invite you in just a few moments when the music begins to play to come down this aisle or that aisle or that aisle. I don't care. And let us take the word of God and show you how this divine transaction can take place where you put your faith and trust in Christ and he forgives you and saves you. If you're already saved, you've never followed the Lord and believers baptism, then you need to come. We'll make arrangements for you to be baptized. In fact, we're having a baptismal service two weeks from today. Two weeks from today. That'll be March, uh, August the 8th, I think. No, nope, August the 9th. That's close. And so uh, you can be baptized then. <laughs> You've been saved, baptized, your church membership's somewhere else, but you feel like God wants you here. God wants you to be a part of this church body. Then we would invite you to come. We'll share with you how we receive members. In fact, I'll share it with you now. We receive members by baptism. If you have trusted Christ as personal Savior and you are willing to follow the Lord in Believer's Baptism, you can be baptized and we will invite you to to join our church. Number two, we invite you... Uh, we accept members by a letter of recommendation from another church of like faith and practice. That means generally means another Baptist church. We'll accept your church membership by letter, on a letter of recommendation. Or we'll accept your membership by statement that you have trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, you've been baptized into a church of like faith and practice, and you want to be a member here. We accept members those three ways. So perhaps that's the need today It may be That while I was speaking You know you're saved And yet you recognize some things in your heart Maybe it wasn't even something I talked about Maybe it's something else entirely But you recognize that there is a spiritual need in your life And there is something you need to confess And ask God's forgiveness for And you just need to come and kneel here at this altar And confess it to God You don't have to confess it to me I can't forgive you anyhow Unless it was against me. And so you come and confess it to God, and He will forgive you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. So you don't have to confess to anybody else. But I invite you to come today. Do business with God before you leave here. As we stand our feet, heads bowed, eyes closed. Brother Greg, for coming to lead us in the invitation song. Father, I pray this morning that your will would be done. Dear Lord, as prayers went up even before Sunday school this morning, we want your will to be done in this service in hearts and lives. We ask you to help people to be wise enough to do what they ought to do. We pray this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. With the grace.